You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. The Canaanites said Elohim and the Greeks Theos. Throw in the Latin Deus and the Anglo-Saxon Gult. And you've got a proposition at the very least, but what can we say about God beyond the fact that we've just said something about God? Eric Hall might be able to help us. His new book, The Homebrewed Christianity Guide to God, takes us on a tour of God concepts from Plato to your hippie aunt and beyond, and he's here to talk God with us for a spell. Thank you, Eric, for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, you make clear fairly early in the book that your main project is going to be to dig into some philosophical accounts of God for the sake of ferreting out bad God concepts. So what benefits come from starting with reason rather than revelation in these kinds of conversations? Well, funny enough, you uh, you said we were going to talk about God for a spell, and uh, I, I think I can play off of that with you here, because I think sometimes we often think of God in these magical terms, right? Uh, we just have these cultural concepts of God whereby we think of God as this sort of maybe benign, maybe wrathful cosmic vending machine, whereby if we say the right words, say the right spells, uh, we begin to be able to manipulate this God uh, to our heart's desire, right? So we can ask for that uh, Camaro we never got in the 70s, uh, or we can uh, try to grow that handlebar mustache that goes right along with the Camaro, for instance, and maybe God will give those if we say the right words, right? (laughs) Am I, I don't think I'm going to reach anyone but my own generation with that one. Um, oh, I, I, I'm, I'm right there with you, Eric, so keep rolling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I think, yeah, I think there are, I was thinking about this question, and I think there are a couple of different answers to it. So let me express first why we start philosophically with talk of God, and then secondly, what the God of reason has to do with this. So in the first three chapters of my book, or I guess really the chapters two, three, and four, I, I draw out five concepts of God and I make an argument for uh, for which God concepts are prior to others. Well, I start with a philosophical analysis of our God concepts because I think most of us, like I was just saying, come at the idea of God as if we already know what God is, right? But we never take a good, long, critical look at our concept of God from the philosophical perspective to ask, well, what is it that we actually believe about God, and should I actually be believing that? And indeed, on what grounds should I make a claim to wanting or to being able to believe in a certain way versus not, right? So we, I, I, this is sort of part and parcel to a culture that says faith and reason are two different things and you know oftentimes frankly we think we're going to be rewarded for overcoming reason for faith and just believing what we've been told something Mm -hmm. like so there's the philosophical point of the description of the god concepts that are attached to theological ideas so theological ideas that we've seen historically that emerge in tradition and that we could so i you know i This will get into your next question, so I won't go there. But now what does the God of reason have to do with this? Well, one of the God concepts that I draw out is bound up with the notion of reason. And I call this one Miyagi God for reasons we'll talk about. uh, Mm -hmm. No pun. Well, go go Uh, ahead. Go roll right into it. That's fine. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, so Mr. Miyagi, I, I loved the Karate Kid growing up, I, <laughs> and everyone worshipped Mr. Miyagi, probably in like a semi-racist way, if I'm honest. Uh, like, I think that's just kind of who we were. Well, well, the funny thing is, I heard an interview with him. He learned to act in a Japanese accent for that movie, because he, he grew up in California. He doesn't sound like yeah. that, just in conversation. Uh, that would That's the only context that I know him, so it would be very strange to hear him otherwise. <laughs> Um, but he, he always represented this sort of, uh, calm, imperturbable, uh, spirit to me. So, uh, so he represents in my book, what I call classical theism. And so I call it Miyagi God, right? Because this, the classically theistic God is that eternal now, the eternal order of the world and universe that is never changed, unchangeable, and uh, without the ability to be affected. So I, so I started thinking, well, that's Mr. Miyagi, isn't it? It's the Mr. Miyagi of God concepts. Mm-hmm. This is also what I call the God of reason. And, um, 
you know, ancient, we, we don't realize oftentimes how much our God concepts are bound up with the question of knowledge philosophically. And what God is for these ancient Greek philosophers is the highest reality. And what they're going to claim that means is that God is pure intellection or pure intellectual capacity, self-thought thinking through itself. And the reason they claim that that's the most real thing is really pretty simple, right? You take a look at a chair. I know, always stupid chairs for philosophers. <laughs> yes, uh, indeed. <laughs> and the material of a chair can be any number of things, right? It can be made of, I'm looking at two chairs right now. They're made of cloth and wood, probably with some sort of plastic stuffing in between, right? But I can, I'm also sitting on a chair that is actually made of pure wood, uh, and I could very ostensibly get a a uh, a chair that's metal. So chairs can be made of anything. The material component isn't what structures them then and makes them up. It's the intellectual component, namely how you define them and what they are. So these ancient philosophers say that, uh, if you will, the definition is actually more real than the material because the definition brings the material to life, brings it form and structure. So what is most real is Intellect, that which defines, and God is a pure intellect thinking through itself. I, that, that's the short story, right? Um, but that, that's the God that I'm ultimately arguing for, and I know I'm going on here. I apologize. What, uh, what this does for me is the following. It allows me, for instance, to look at all of our other God concepts and say, okay, but is that really how things work? And try to enter into a reasonable analysis of yes or no. Mm-hmm. Well, I want you to, I want to hear, I want our readers to, readers, our listeners to hear some of that analysis. Um, talk about, and I, and I have to admit, I mean, the, the pop culture references, uh, some of them hit and some of them missed for me, but that's all right. I, I can only imagine if I had to do a book like this, what references I would pull on. Uh, but talk about your Jersey Shore God and your Oprah Winfrey God and <laughs> where they hit and where they miss, because these are sort of the three... <clears throat> big concepts that you start out with before you make a turn to more contemporary versions of God. Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, <clears throat> I started with Mr. Miyagi because he's imperturbable and he represents the God of classical theism. Importantly, he's also a karate master. So any critique that you throw at him, I think he immediately reverses and then puts you into some sort of leg lock. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, I'll explain that in a bit. Um, but, okay, so Jersey Shore, this represents the god that emerges in the late medieval, uh, like probably 13th, 12th, 13th centuries with people like Duns Scotus, William of Ockham. And they were doing something really important here. They were critiquing the idea of universals. What's that mean? Well, when we claim to know something from a classical perspective, like we were claiming to know the chair, we're claiming to know the definition of the chair, right? So we're claiming to know that the definition has a universal essence to it that is applicable to anything we call a chair. And what we're actually claiming to do is enter into the mind of God and how God has defined chairs. Chairs still, sorry. Uh, what the voluntarists are doing is they're saying, hold on there, Buckwheat. Um, all you're doing is projecting what you think a chair is onto the world and then claiming that it's universal. But really, the universal only exists within our own mind. Uh, and it's a helpful way for us to classify a world that is really made up of things that are inextricably, inextricably particular. So they are everything is individual and we classify things for the sake of convenience. Um, this is important because what it says is that God then is not bound to the universal concepts through which God has created all things. Rather, God can interact freely with these things in whatever way God sees fit. And so you move from this notion that how God acts and God's omnipotence being uh, bound up with the idea that, well, God can't do whatever God wants. God can do always what is in God's essence or what is God's best to this volunteerist idea that really God's not an intellect. God's a will that merely acts in the world in whatever way it wants because it's no longer bound to itself and its conception of the world. There are no actual concepts in the world. There are just individual things. Mm -hmm. So why Jersey Shore? 
Well, really, that's pretty easy at the end of the day. When you look at the Jersey Shore folks, or at least the way they're caricatured on the show, right, uh, their wills acting in the world, maybe they use their intellects, but it's merely an instrumental use, right, like an animal, uh, to gain the next burrito or beer. Uh, but they're not thinking through their worlds in any sort of ordered way. They're merely wills enacting themselves in the world. And that is kind of the idea I had in mind with the Jersey Shore god. This actually... This is really important. There, I, I really demagogue the Jersey Shore God. There are important parts to it as well. But all of our contemporary conceptions are at least somewhat based on this Jersey Shore. So I demagogue it for the sake of at least helping us to overcome an immediate and absolute sympathy toward Jersey Shore. There are reasons. So there are things to talk about why it's important and good, including the freedom of God. Um, and we also so, ought to uh, give some credence to the pedigree of this concept i mean no less a figure than martin luther argued this kind of god in on the bondage of the will so you know it's it's not as if the jersey shore crew came up with this concept (laughs) no (laughs) no 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 luther luther is entirely uh adherent to a Jersey Shore concept, uh, not the Jersey Shore cast, of God, right? And that's why he's also terrified all the time. Because mm-hmm. he sees, he see, and he has to only look at God, if you will, uh, under the uh, under the contradiction of the cross. Because it's there that you see that God is not merely a God, this immensely scary God, who will pour wrath down upon you for farting wrong. Sorry. Uh, uh, but rather a God who also gives God's self to you in love through Christ somehow. I don't actually think he has a clear Christology sometimes, but that's a different question. Oh, sure, sure. (laughs) Well, it's interesting. Uh, This is the third podcast in a week and a half where nominalism has come up, so... I don't oh, know wow. if I'm, <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not sure whether I'm just interviewing the right people or if I'm just steering it that way without <laughs> knowing it. That's great, yeah. <laughs> but That's tell great. us a little bit about deism as a sort of counterpart to voluntarism on one hand and classical theism on the other. Yeah, you got it. So deism buys into uh at least one portion of, uh, of voluntarism. So retired Oprah buys into one version of Jersey Shore. Jersey Shore God becomes the highest possible being, one being amongst others, but in the highest possible way, right? So it's almost like a massive human uh, spirit sitting at the top of things. Whereas from the classical theistic perspective, God, as we say, is sui generis. Not a being amongst other beings, but rather of God's own accord. Aquinas will say God is the act of being itself, such that anything that comes into being already depends on God, and even the nothingness to which we go is in some ways dependent on God as well. So God is. That's the best definition Aquinas gives of God. Um, God is. (laughs) Uh, So what deism does is it says, no, 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 God is a being among other beings, but I don't really care for the revelational content of Jersey Shore God, right? Because what happens with Luther is because God is this massively uh, scary will that you don't know, you begin looking to the revelatory content of God beneath the contradiction of the cross, that God comes to us, that God loves us, even if God retains what's called the deus uh, absconditus, the hidden will of God, which no one knows, not even God, actually, for Luther. Um, So Dias say, no, 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 forget all that stuff. What you have is an order God. Um, we, we experience this world around us in and through order, and the Enlightenment was sort of emerging at the time, and you'd already been deeply entrenched in modernity. Uh, we are developing the empirical sciences that allow us to explain things like gravity to some degree, uh, better than Aristotle ever could. And the deists are saying, we experience order. And in fact, we experience material order in whatever we do. So this notion that God is deeply mysterious or that God somehow has these uh, this indiscernible will is silliness. Uh, so let's forget about the and, – and repressing in many ways. They're almost proto-Freudian here. Uh, we don't need to worry about this revelatory God. Instead, they think they're going back to classical theism. Let's remember what Aristotle says. 
and let's just envision God as the highest possible being. But, you know, in reality, nothing else depends on God. God just winds up the creation and lets it go. And that's why I bring up uh, Oprah, right? Because at this point, she's created her empire. She likely has a series of competent managers running it that are like the laws of nature. And now she can go drink Mai Tais on some uh, beach in Thailand with Stedman rubbing her feet, right? She doesn't need to worry about the creation anymore, or the corporation that she's created. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, I want to give Trip Fuller some credit here for a moment because when you turn from those three sort of older God concepts to one of the newer ones, uh, you give us a version of process thought that is your hippie aunt. <laughs> and I have to imagine Trip seeing the first, you know, copies of this and uh, taking it at least somewhat in stride because they still made it into the book. So who is this hippie aunt and, uh, you know, what does she have to do with uh, John Cobb? Oh, yeah. Well... I, I always imagine the full the, this image emerged because I always imagine folks at Claremont Schools of Theology, right? They're all wonderful people, but they're all old hippies at the end of the day. Uh, so I always I always just chuckle at this image because I've met all these people, I like all these people, and they fit this description better than anything I've ever written. Um, so yeah, Trip Fuller is a really good sport about this one. He 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 laughed at me he goes dude you managed to draw out the most absurd elements of any of the concepts of god that we might have and he thought i especially did a good job with this one and then he trolls me through the rest of the book with the comments that oh you, we're, we're uh, going to talk about that because that that I, that yeah. that cracked me up it really did no i know <laughs> i know I, I i was chuckling hard too uh so yeah hippie ann is this um just as your we all have a hippie ant. Um, at least somewhere along the way or if we don't have one we definitely know that hippie aunt who never got married probably has a few children uh, and has entered into some sort of real relationship right but won't give herself over to social confines we all know that person well this represents to me sort of the process god right because the process god if you will it wants to envision the identity of God as being something like the soul of the world. And just like our souls and our intellects are affected by our bodies, which the world would be in process thought, so too is God as world mind, world soul, affected by the outcomes of the world. Identity, at least partially, changes. Even though Tripp will try to claim that's not the case, I think the real identity has to change. Um, so... I envision this process, God, in its actual theological terms, this this notion becomes really helpful because God becomes a very relational type of God. It's it, it's built, by the way, on the back of deism. So people like Alfred North Whitehead looked at deistic tradition, said, no, that is way too distant of a God. We don't have to accept this. God, it seems, they're also trying to go back to ancient Greece as much as they rejected as well and draw God back into the world in some way. So they retain the idea that God is at the top of the ladder of being in some ways, but God becomes the world soul and whatever actions we do in the world and we are the world right so every being that surrounds you is a relational being that constitutes the notion of world each and every movement action intentionality helps to create the next moment of the world which is entirely defined by becoming what god does as a world soul is looks into that sees the possibilities that emerge from each act of concrescence in theology terms uh, and tries to draw out of it the best possibility, beckoning the world to become something better than what it is. So I put it like this. God is your hippie aunt um, who sits at the head of a drum circle, probably a protest drum circle of some sort, usually pertaining to one of the two Bushes, and now Trump. Uh, and she sits at the head of this, and she beats her drum, but the world, namely the rest of the drum circle, is beating right along with her, and we're trying to stay in sync with one another in such a way that we follow the rhythm of the, uh, of the particular leader, right? So th that's my, <laughs> that's the basic idea of, my, of your hippie aunt. That's nice. That's nice. I, I sometimes refer to this concept of God as the God who asks nicely. 
Uh, this, uh, <laughs> you know, can't really do much, but, you know, we'll ask you nicely not to be such a jerk. Yeah, that's right. And it is a really friendly concept. I totally have a bourbon with this god. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well I want to get the fifth god concept in here because you do have five, which is a good medieval number. I like that. Um, there be six, by the way. There should be six, but that's a different. Oh, okay. So it, it got taken down from six. Okay, that's that's good to know. No, I just I had to force force a sixth out. There, there's an intermediary point between the German hermeneutic concept and what you might call deism, but that, I, I'm still developing my understanding of this one. <laughs> I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. Well, I want to talk about that hermeneutic tra tradition because you pick yeah. uh, Joan of Arc for this one. This is the god who unsettles expectations. You look to figures like Derrida and Caputo for this one. I, I do want to ask, I mean, you know, this is a tradition where I tend to locate myself when I do locate myself, sure. although... One benefit of being out of the seminary world is I don't have to be in the school of this or that. It's very relieving. No. Um, <laughs> but um, I tend to go to writers like David Tracy and Hans-Georg Gadamer when mm -hmm. I talk about that hermeneutic tradition and not necessarily stop with Derrida and Caputo. I mean, are they part of that same sphere of influence in your mind or are they of a different tradition? So in some ways, I'm actually going to the German hermeneutic tradition, the German theological hermeneutic tradition, which is another offshoot of Heidegger. And I'm looking to persons like Eberhard Jungel, mm -hmm. uh, my own dissertation advisor in Gulf Dolphurth, uh, and the way that they develop their concepts of God. Now, and I'll explain the references to Caputo and Derrida momentarily here. But for them... God is the act of self-revelation. They're taking this Bartian point and developing it. Mm -hmm. God is the act of self-revelation who comes to us in love and tries to, in some way similar to the Hiviant, actually, uh, but I, I think more interestingly in other ways, uh, trying to draw us out of ourselves into a notion of self-giving love. And this God can only come to us in and through tradition, but there's always a recreation of this tradition anew so that god becomes the you know the, so for instance jungle's description of christ is this christ is the metaphor of god uh well what's a or the parable of god they're two mm -hmm. sides of the same for him um what's he mean by that well if we say the metaphor for instance achilles is a lion i've used something familiar or something foreign to draw, something familiar to draw something out that's foreign, right? So when I say Achilles is a lion, I am equating him to, to use another metaphor, the king of the jungle, uh, which draws me into sort of Achilles' attitude. He's ferocious. He's a fighter. He uh, he hunts people on the battlefield like a uh, lion does gazelle, right? Um, so. When we say that Jesus is the metaphor for God, what we're saying is that he becomes the familiar in and through the human that draws us into the reality of God, right? Uh, and the reality of God is therefore defined entirely Trinitarianly in and through the acts of Christ. So the uh, imminent trinity is the economic trinity. That's one of Jungle's statements that he makes with Rohner. Um and uh, God becomes then the one who disrupts us as Christ has disrupted the world. Um, but it's always for Jungel especially, and I haven't figured out my own advisor yet, Dolphurth, but for Jungel it's always in and through love uh, that we're disrupted for the sake of being drawn into an ever broader interpretation of the world and frankly a notion that this is, I think, highly important. We are not creators, but the created we think of ourselves in modernity as the creators. We are solely the ones who have a say over the world. So through chemistry and critical theory alike, we try to break everything down to its primordial goo and rebuild it to our own liking. But part of this is drawing us into our own creatureliness so that we recognize that we're given over to things rather than merely getting to act on them. Um, so that, that said, why I bring in Caputo and Derrida is I think that they're the more familiar uh, to persons in the U.S., right? So I know that, for instance, Caputo gets uh, interviewed on homebrewed Christianity all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, I really like Caputo. In fact, I got to have dinner with he and his wife once at a conference. And uh, 
I always laugh because he is just the nicest man and it's the nicest family I've ever met. He is entirely family oriented and you would never guess that from the theology he writes, if it's theology at all. Uh, but that aside, um, I think he represents a way for Americans to jump into uh, hermeneutic thought in this sort of theological tradition. And he represents, if, if Jungel represents the God who calls us constantly to love, Derrida's, uh, Derrida and Caputo are a bit more skeptical. They're going to make the claim that God actually, if a, you know, God is nothing like what we conceive it, it's the act of deconstruction. So when our worlds fall to chaos, inevitably, that's the act in which God has come to us. Whether it's a moment of grace or whether it's a repetition of Luther's Deus, Deus Absconditus in a terrifying moment, that's a different question. But that's why I bring it in there, if you will. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting, and, I, and I'm going to jump around a little bit here on you. I mean, yeah. uh, within this hermeneutic tradition, I mean, I, I, I really was reaching out to give you a high five when you noted that Meister Eckhart, who's sort of the patron saint of the spiritual but not religious crowd, uh, was a mass priest to use the, yeah, the old but... English kenning. Uh, he was a, as religious a dude as you would ever want. Uh, your line was, he is as Catholic as could be. Um, let me ask you this. I mean, you know, the stereotype is that traditions are sort of self-perpetuating, self-protecting, um, you know, institutions with a capital I and a sneer at the end. Um, yeah. What does it mean when a tradition has at its own core a god who stands above the tradition. I mean, don't these people have any sense of self-preservation? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that emerges in one of the most fun chapters I had to write called uh, Is God Spiritual But Not Religious? Mm -hmm. um, my whole point here, so if I admit it, I have certain proclivities toward this position too, right? I live in Montana. Uh, I, I butt up to public land, and uh, in my most hippie ant moments, uh, it's when I'm hiking through the woods uh, with my dog by my side and my daughter on my back that I feel the most divine experience, right? So I know this. I know this spiritual but not religious tradition well. I just also understand that the only thing that gives me capacity to think in these terms is my uh is my the fact that i go to and take eucharist every week with a community of people that keeps me focused on and thinking through the divine um so that's kind of the argument i'm trying to make throughout this chapter uh yeah so what what was the question again about whether we have celebration or not the like people who want to put up questions about meister eckhart yeah, well, I mean, I, I it was, I mean, I had my tongue firmly in cheek. I don't have a webcam going, so you couldn't see it. But, uh, you know, if if you follow just the stereotypes about the, you know, evil Dan Dan Brown Vatican conspiracy, that's you know constantly self-preserving and constantly putting down all criticism, then yeah. you might be surprised to see that you know the god of Catholic dogma is in fact above tradition and beyond tradition, and yet. Yeah. There you have it. So, I mean, what possibilities arise? Let me rephrase the question. Yeah. Uh, when you are within a tradition that points beyond itself as a tradition. Yeah, fair enough. So this is actually where I think I get into Gautamer, as you were asking in the last mm -hmm. question. Because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to understand Gautamer's notion of the idea of bias. He he thinks we're biased toward bias, right? That's how he, he might phrase it. Um, we we think that just because we have certain lenses through which we view the world or uh, we think because we have these lenses that we must automatically be biased, right? That we must automatically, therefore, not see the truth uh, and we cannot, if you will, transcend ourselves. And I think this is where Gautamer is really helpful. Like I said, he says we're biased toward bias or another way to put it is the Enlightenment tradition doesn't like tradition, so it tries to ignore tradition. Mm -hmm. But I think the better way if we're to sort of summarize Gautamer is to say this. When you wear a pair of bifocals, that actually helps you to see the world, right? Um, you can see I, – I, Nathan, if I remember correctly, you wear glasses. Or I do indeed. How bad are you, how bad's your vision without? Pretty terrible. So you see a blurry world, for instance, when you don't have your uh, glasses on, correct? Indeed. Um, so putting on the glasses, which I think represent tradition, 
actually help you to focus in on the world. And even if maybe you miss certain parts of it, it at least develops a partial awareness of the truth and orients you in a truthful manner. And you can get smudges on the glasses, which then get in your way of your ability to see. Um, and that's how I want to think of the notion of bias, is a smudge on the lens of tradition. But mm. it's not the fullness of what the lenses actually offer you, and we have a need to wipe off those smudges. Um, so that said, we can't get away from tradition. We, we can pretend like we're not bound up with tradition, but if we weren't bound up with tradition, even Derrida and Caputo would make no sense because that's what they're doing is breaking tradition, right? But Gadamer says embrace tradition, learn from tradition, try to think through tradition, become, if you will, a living member of a tradition such that like a jazz player, a jazz quartet player begins to play out the tradition that came before him or her, you also live out the tradition that comes before you. Now, that said, usually what we say of God is that God is above tradition. I affirm this point, but I can only affirm it in and through the language that my tradition is tied to. So in affirming the truth that God is beyond tradition, I also affirm my tradition in and of itself, recognizing that God, as the infinite one, has the capacity, if you will, to draw this tradition into critique. So I want to have my cake and eat it too. Tradition illumines, opens up the divine, but never in fullness. God always has the last say. Mm -hmm. This is actually one of the important points, I think, from a Christian perspective, not uh, not equating the Bible with the word. We can call it the word with a lowercase w, but if we mean by Christ that Christ is God and that Christ is divine, I think that's the one to whom we have to ascribe the word of God. I'm very Bartian here, right? The, mm -hmm. Ironically, as a Catholic. Um, that's the one whom we have to ascribe the word of God, because, look, I'm a good Catholic here. The scripture is in many ways a function of and for the church. Uh, and now it can call the church into question, too, but it calls the church into question when it is testifying not to its own power moves best, but, if you will, the word that is Christ. <laughs> mm -hmm. That makes some sense. And it's interesting, I mean, that, that side of things, that philosophical side of tradition— uh, is compelling, and that's why I wanted you to talk about that. Uh, but on a sort of existential, psychological level, uh, you also run into problems if you try to be non-traditional. Uh, and for this, I mean, you tell this wonderful parable that I'm not going to try to summarize. I'm going to have you tell it to our listeners. Uh, so, listeners, I give you Eric Hall and the parable of the bourbon. <laughs> yeah, okay, I got to... So... Again, this was a fun chapter to write uh, because I'm I'm trying in some ways to play with uh, with Christian fears of bourbon and alcohol. There's good reason to be fearful of alcohol, right? But sometimes we bring it a little bit too far. So I wrote an entire chapter on bourbon as representative of tradition. And so one day, this is especially true, if you will, of more liberal strands of the Christian faith. They try to dabble in different traditions. That's what they how they would want to express it, right? So they want to become bourbon tasters without recognizing that if you're calling yourself a bourbon taster, you're already doing that from within the standpoint of a tradition already. Um, that's why I want to say, actually, don't think of yourself as a bourbon taster. Think of yourself as the bourbon and if you think of yourself as the bourbon, um, what you can do is you can understand that you can – there are two ways to approach – or three ways to approach tradition. You can become a very shallow bourbon by not being steeped and aged in the bourbon barrel of tradition long enough. And I think that's too often what sort of bourbon tasters become. They, they, they have no clue what they're actually tasting because they haven't been steeped long enough. They don't actually know what they – the assumptions through which they approach everything. Um, then there's the traditionalist, the one who uh, gets soaked in the bourbon barrel of tradition too long and becomes astringent. And I, I refer to these oftentimes in the Catholic world as liturgists, frankly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, they think that these, um, if you will, uh, was, uh, these mores, mores are the absolutes through which you must think through and characterize all things. And then there's the perfectly 
perfectly aged bourbon, which I think we should all desire to become, whereby we know the tradition, the assumptions that uh, that are derived through the tradition, the trajectory of the tradition of which we're a part. And yet, in and through that tradition, we become open to the possibility of something beyond that tradition, hearing out others, sensing the, with a sort of sensitive spirit, the truth in other traditions as well. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, Eric, I want to talk about the process of producing this book. We already alluded to it before, uh, but when you get into about the fourth chapter of this book, all of a sudden, you don't just get Eric Hall, but you get all of these voices trolling Eric Hall, so... Tell our listeners in a moment here, what is a homebrewed posse and what in the world are they doing popping up all over your book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, let's see. This is entirely Trip's creation. And I just <laughs> I had to passively submit to it in order to publish the book, right? Uh, but that's okay. I got, I got him good with the hippie ant chapter. Uh, the uh, Yeah, so the homebrewed posse, I believe it's framed as the bishop. Um, the acolyte, the, I can't remember all of them, but the, the elder and the, which one do we forget? The deacon. How could the, we forget the deacon? So each of these has like a particular set of characteristics. Um, and I think Trip and Nathan especially are both, uh, uh, both commenting on the book throughout using these characters. And what they do is I think like the, the acolyte is supposed to be somewhat cynical. So they look cynically at my book through the act actually they do they look cynically at my book through all of them but god bless them for letting me publish it anyways uh (laughs) so so each of these characters has a certain voice and what trip uses them for is to troll me throughout my entire book and to try to to correct my old theistic butt by way of process theological language, right? It doesn't work because process thought inherently fails, but that's okay. It's still good trolling. (laughs) Very good. Very good. I want to turn to questions of religious pluralism because I thought this was a strong (laughs) section of the book. Sure. And, And the very first question I want to pose is that, I mean, you put such a premium on the contingency of birth when you talk about religious pluralism. Yeah. Uh, which I, I was I was saying, all right, I can go along with this. And then, you know, my kid broke something in the next room and I had to go fix it. And I came back and I picked your book up again. I said, wait a minute, this guy converted to Catholicism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So talk about that relationship between birth and choice and pluralism. Well, how do those pieces fit together? Sure. So we're born into worlds over which we have no control. Um and sometimes we try to fix that by taking too much control of the world, et cetera. But that, sorry, we don't have to get into the existential and my, my critique of that here. Uh, but we're born into worlds over which we have very little control, right? We were consummated by our parents. I apologize for the image there. Um, they were sweaty, <laughs> by the way. Uh, <laughs> we were usually barren by a mother and then um we came into this world spanked by a doctor uh that's an old 50s image but it works uh and then we were raised in a set of values right and we don't have control over these values um if you're raised in montana you're gonna eat a lot of cow uh if you're born in jim crow south you're probably gonna think that persons of color so to say are not equal to white persons right um you don't have control over those aspects of how you value things how you see into the world um so that so this is the radical contingency if you will that we're born into one of the contingent things is our religiosity we don't have a say over our religiosity. So I have, I have a lot of friends and I have arguments with them on this. They say, well, I'm not going to raise my child anything because I will let them choose to be whatever they want to be. And I, I, I mean, I entirely disagree. I say, forget that. Embrace your contingency. Embrace, if you will, the tradition which you were contingently born into. My daughter is going to be a, a fundamentalist Catholic, for God's sake. <laughs> I'm totally kidding on that point, but she, you know, I'm raising her Catholic, and that was actually to draw this into my conversion. Is frankly one of the reasons I became Catholic, uh, and it was contingent reasons, if I'm honest, that drew me into Catholicity. Now, for a long time, because of the way that I've thought about God in terms of reason and relation, or faith and reason, um, 
I've been intellectually sympathetic to Catholicism for about 15 years of my life, and I've toyed with it on and off, but I could never make the move. I had problems with popes like everyone does, and then Pope Francis came around and I said, oh, boy, this guy's something else. Um, can't say I agree with everything about Pope Francis, but I will say this. He represents in his pastoral affirmation of people Christ well in the world, right? And mm -hmm. I said, if this is the fulcrum of the tradition, if this is what the tradition was really meaning all along, I, I, can, I can be in. Um, second, I have a bishop uh, who, during you know, who dealt with the sex scandal in probably the best way that I could envision for a horrible situation to be in. He sent our diocese into bankruptcy to try to compensate for some of the ills done by the church to. Uh, the people who were sexually abused, right? So he was willing to put uh, money where his mouth was in order to try to bring some sort of reconciliation here that we will never have uh, until kingdom come, right? Um, so I saw these two things, and then I looked at the strong community of Catholics around me, and I said, you know what? I want to raise my daughter in this community. They're really good people. They're really cool people. I'm already inclined toward this, and I want to take Eucharist with my daughter, well, let's do it. So we became Catholic, right? And it was in some ways not entirely deliberate. It was based on where we ended up being, uh, a particular bishop who drew us in and a particular pope who drew us in, uh, and the capacity to say, yeah, this is, this is what we hope for, and it's perhaps imperfections. It's what we wanted to be a part of. So even that conversion for me was bound up with contingency, at least in part. And yet I imagine there were some Montana Charismatics who did not become Catholic. Yeah, indeed. Exactly. That's, <laughs> yeah. Plenty of Montana Charismatics who are uh, not Catholic, right? All right. So, I mean, where does choice come in there then? Yeah, good, good question. Choice, um, let's say this, the circumstances that surround choices are oftentimes contingent, but then uh, one's choice becomes a deliberation. Right. Mm -hmm. So we look right. at who we are, who we want to become, and we make the choice, hopefully, to who we want to become rather than merely who we are. I made the choice to become Catholic because I wanted to become Catholic rather than because I was one, even though I was inclined in that direction either way. So, I, you know, how I say I, I, I think nothing's entirely contingent so i guess i'm not a existentialist in that sense nothing's just entirely although even heidegger said that you take a stand on your own being yeah exactly that's yeah, perfectly said thank you yeah i think I, I talk a lot about being in time too so i <laughs> and i and i blame my friend michael farmer for that but it, that's another story for another time of course yeah another Interesting part of this this chapter on, and it's really a section of the book on religious pluralism, has to do with Buddhism and, and how, you know, this is sort of the go-to, you know, Eastern religion, so to speak. Yep. Although now that I read Edward Said, I get a rash whenever I hear that phrase. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I'll, I'll have to go admit here, Eric, I mean, when I hear a white person claim to be a Buddhist, I always think that this is an atheist with commitment issues. <laughs> but... You are, I mean, very, very concerned in this chapter to say, okay, if you just don't want to be Christian, that doesn't make you a Buddhist because Buddhism actually has its own particularity. So yeah, that's right. What, what's the character of that particularity and why, why is this discussion important in a Christian theology book about God? Yeah, great question. So I, I, was, I was provoked into engaging in interreligious dialogue. Okay, it was never something I wanted to do. I didn't care. I don't. I didn't care about other religions. I just like I don't let them do what they need to do. Right. Um, that's the sort of uh, independent libertarian I think in me at <laughs> But every, very Montana. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> everyone put when I was in grad school. Everyone put such a premium on this notion of interreligious dialogue, and that well, you had to learn from others right and i actually agree with that and i was immediately sympathetic to that point yeah yeah we always have something to learn 
but there was always a sense in which we wanted to give up the fullness of the Christian tradition in order to learn something from the other. And that's actually, so uh, I think one way to view uh, Buddhists are, as, as you know, white Buddhists are Buddhists with athe uh, atheists with commitment issues. Another way to view it is uh, sort of Christians who wanted to find something like Christianity light, uh, who also have commitment issues and who wanted just to beat on their own tradition, right, to look good in front of others. So I don't think I have as sympathetic a view of these people as you think I do. <laughs> uh, I have a pretty cynical view. But it actually got me to thinking through Buddhist thought. At first, it was for the sake of trying to crush my opposition, because I wanted to say, look, <laughs> you can look at other religious traditions, but don't give up your Christian faith in the process. In fact, it's the love that you show to others, uh, being willing to put the other before yourself that allows you to uh, take other traditions seriously in the first place, who, by the way, rarely take you as seriously as you take them. Um, but then it drew me into Buddhist thought, and I started jumping into Buddhist thought and engaging in critique of Buddhist thought from the standpoint of Buddhist thought itself, right? And I ended up at this Zen position that in some ways I think is the fulcrum of of Buddhism in that it abides by what I at least can see, if we can say it abides by anything at all, two main principles. Um, the, the first is, comes through this parable, if you see the Buddha on the road, kill him. Um, and the second one that's attached directly to it is the idea of the connectedness of all things such that there is no truth that you could work out. So uh, I actually can't remember what that principle is called. It's usually right on my mind. I've forgotten it because I haven't t taught comparative religion now in a year. Um, so here's, here's the conclusion I came to. From a truly Buddhist perspective, and this is what I see in some of my Zen interlocutors and uh, the people who aren't trying to write about it but just practicing it, you give up all definitions of truth and a desire for truth because your entire being is oriented not toward something silly like truth, but toward an equanimity that does not care anymore about the world as such, right? Um, and I think this is an entirely pragmatic move. And I thought it was interesting because what you end up seeing are people who give themselves over to the world not to control it, and not to be necessarily controlled by it either, but simply to be in relationship with it. And this actually ended up making sense of a part of the tradition for me that I think I had lost in sort of my existential pursuits. I'd forgotten, not not because I forgot the prayer, but I'd forgotten the portion of the prayer where we say, not my will, but yours, right? Mm. Um, and I, it took actually uh, a dislike for usual ways of interreligious dialogue to get me into Buddhist thought, which then brought me back to my Christian tradition and the idea of not my will but yours to make me recognize that I'm a control freak, that I indeed try to control the world when it's not mine to control, right? And this is a deeply uh, this, this is a deep part of the Christian tradition. Pope Francis just wrote on it again, right, in his Laudato Si. Uh, this environmental encyclical is completely politicized. Everyone says it's the climate change encyclical. Fair enough, that's brought up. The whole thing is just the same teaching we've been teaching over and over again. You're a creature, not the creator, so stop acting like the creator, <laughs> right? But this is what the Buddhist opened back up for me in my own tradition. Very good, very good. I want to talk about your Jesus chapter. Yeah. Um, you know, it is the, the last full chapter in the book. Yep. Uh, and it presents Jesus in a way that I, I've certainly seen before in other scholars as being a reiteration of Israel and a, a bringing to fulfillment of Israel. Yeah. Uh, and Israel, in other words, that doesn't go off the rails the way that the historical people did. Yep. Um, and like I said, that much, you know, I was right there with you. My question for you is, how does that very particular story stand into relation stand in relationship pardon me with the almost dizzyingly universal character of Miyagi God because <laughs> it seems like if you if you have one you lose your grip on the other and vice versa yeah I, um here's what I'd say uh, I think I want to reframe it this way 
we start with Miyagi God because Miyagi God is true, or at least that's the type of argument I'm going to try to make for better or worse in my book. I'm not necessarily comfortable with that statement. I just think I was being honest when I had to come to that statement. Um, uh, so I think Miyagi God is true in terms of how it conceives of God. And what, you know, I, I'm highly dependent on Pope Benedict here as when he was Cardinal Ratzinger in his introduction to Christianity. Um, and he says that the early church made a choice. Um, it saw God in and through the lens of Christ, affirming, uh, affirming Yahweh in and through Christ and seeing that the will of Yahweh uh, was manifest entirely in Christ, Christ's ministry and Christ's death, right? Um, but it also had to make a choice. Was it going to go in its sort of gentilization? Was it going to gentrification? I don't know whichever one of those you mean. <laughs> uh, was it going to go the way of Zeus, for instance? That's where I think we've gone or we've come to. Or was it going to go the way of Plato? Uh and argue instead of sort of a god of the people and a god, uh, sort of a folk religious god, was it going to go with the academic definition of God as the highest reality of high of realities, the god of truth? And it made a conscientious decision for the god of truth with an important caveat, that it become reinterpreted trinitarianly or dualistically at that point through Christ, right? That the God of the universe, rather than being the uh, self-illuminating intellect thinking solely through itself, rather it became the God who became a God for us. And this is the scandal I think Paul is talking about, right? The scandal that this God is, the, the confusion that this God is to the Greeks. God doesn't care about us. The order of the universe, the geometry of the universe doesn't care for us. But Benedict says, no, the, the early church sees this God through Christ, which means God cares for us and takes on the character of Christ, which is love. So uh, Benedict calls this God, uh, we reinterpret it as the, as the Christian God, as namely creative love, the ground of creative love. <laughs> so I think that I, there's a lot of explanatory power in that move, whether it makes sense ultimately is it question, which I address in my conclusion, right? But um, mm -hmm. I, I at least think that this is an interesting way to go. And the scandal is apparent because now all of a sudden we're claiming that God has invested God's self into a first century Jew, and that the trajectory of the entire universe now is dependent on this same person. That's absurd at the level of reason, even though it makes a lot of sense if we interpret that God through the person of Christ. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, with all of this, and I mean, you know, we've got the God of reason, we've got the tradition character of, you know, Christian dogma, we've got the particularity of Christ. Uh, I want to kind of loop, loop around here at the end to one of the goofier ways that people talk about God in the 21st century, and that is as a an explanatory hypothesis. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, that this is one that I I, I was a guest uh, maybe a couple of years ago on the philosophy podcast that partially examined life, and this is what they just wanted to come back to. You know, what about the God hypothesis? What about the God hypothesis? And I said, I, you know, it, it wasn't a hypothesis. It was a blinding light that knocks you on your tail on the road to Damascus. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a different category entirely. Sure. But when did people start talking about God as a hypothesis to explain the world? And how does that vocabulary, which is very universal, yeah. depart from the way that philosophers talked about God up until Good. then? Yeah, I, th I think this was this was a reaction of sort of Christian thinkers, probably a lot of Catholics mixed in, guilty of this as well, uh, as they're reacting to the movements of modernity uh, and especially mm -hmm. the Enlightenment, right? So as the empirical sciences begin to take off and begin to be able to explain everything that we either thought was unexplainable or we just chalked up to God's will, uh, people reacted and said, no, no, no. Uh, you see, in between your theory of gravity, uh, your theory of gravitation and your theory of, I don't know, make whatever up you want there, you have this gap here. And it's God who fills in that gap and draws these two principles together. Um, and and that that's mistaken. <laughs> and it's mistaken, one, because I think it inherently gives truth over entirely to what I'd call science worship. Um, 
And secondly, I think it's mistaken because it misses out on the idea that, indeed, as you brought up, God isn't merely a, an explanatory hypothesis. God is the ground of all things, which is beyond something like a hypothesis whatsoever. Um, mm -hmm. So let me address the first point. Uh, with regard to the science worship. We tend to make, I think, a mistake that the sciences have, are the fulcrum point of reason, that all things can be explained in and through the sciences, that if we don't have a scientific explanation for it, it must be merely preference. Of course, my retort to that is I'd like to see an empirical verification of that very statement. It should be measurable. I should be able to compare it and draw out an experiment about that very statement itself. And if I can't, then it cannot stand as a truth unto itself, right? That's my basic usual argument, and uh, I actually think it stands really well. It's the positivists. A.J. Ayer recognized this very thing about positivism in the early 20th century. Um, mm -hmm. I want and and it's it's similar to David Hume's critique of the cosmological argument, right? Fair show 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 me a universe that isn't designed, and let's compare. Yeah, them. exactly. That, yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I what I think people are trying to do is show, one, they have this false dependency on the language of science. And they try to make science into a pseudoscience. Namely, whenever anyone in the sciences talks about anything as scientific that is beyond what I'd call the materially constant, I call bullcrap on it. Because I think they are more or less extending the methods of the sciences beyond what the methods were actually created for and what they're useful for. I cannot actually mm. talk about the meaning of a painting at the level of science. I could talk about the chemistry of the painting, and there are those who I think wrongly will suppose that the reality of a painting is found in its chemical components. I, again, say bullcrap. I don't think you actually think that, and I could show you why. Uh, but, um, it, yeah, I want to say when we talk about material constancy, then, yeah, let's talk science. So I don't want to get into, for instance, uh, herbal remedy, you know, contemporary sort of herbal remedies for ills. I want what has been positivistically verified as that which will cure me, right? That's just because that's a materially constant question. Um, but other questions like the question of God, who has no materiality, um, these are questions altogether beyond what the sciences could approach one way or another. And I, I do try to argue for something like the existence of Miyagi God. Uh, I argue for it on the idea that we cannot get away from truth statements, that there has to be something like a constancy that grounds us in that, and you can make of it what you want. Uh, I'm not particularly offended by critique. So, um, but, but this is different. It's not an explanatory hypothesis. It's trying to draw us into, um, if you will, a small inkling of who God is, a, a grace, if you will, in Christian terms, even through the mind, such that we can become open to and awed by the, uh, by the vastness of the divine. Um, and I think that's actually what all the old philosophers were doing, too, the sort of Greco, at least the Greek philosophers, Plato especially. I mean, I love the dude, and I think a lot of early Christian philosophers did the same thing. So even if they'd offer arguments for the existence of God, it's not to try to convince anyone. We don't care about convincing anyone. It's in some ways just drawing us into a very particular experience that blows open our worlds, to go back to the language of Joan of Arc. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, Eric, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. So what do you want our listeners thinking about God, Karate Kid, Voltron, <laughs> or whatever else as we head for the door? You know, Nathan, I'm pretty sure I've talked my head off in this, so uh, that was way too polite of a way to say that, but I appreciate it. <laughs> um, the, uh, here, here's, the point of my book is this. I want people to overcome the fear of reason and I want people to understand that faith can become a reasoned faith. And that's really why I focus on the God of reason, if you will, because it makes some constitutive demands on the notion of faith and how we think through faith. Now, that said, faith goes way beyond reason. We cannot at the level of reason say that God is a first century Jew. 
<laughs> that might just be a bad LSD trip, if I'm totally honest. It's a, but it is a beautiful one, or at least I try to set it up as a beautiful one. One that draws us into the promise of an eschatological reality, where, as Isaiah says, the lion will lay with the lamb. That's too much for me. I, I cannot ignore it. It has drawn me in for as many times as I've tried to get away from it, that hope. Um, and it's in the beauty of hope, I think, that faith, if you will, unfolds to us as a possible truth. So truth functions for us this way. Truth blows open our worlds. We oftentimes talk about common sense, and why don't people just have common sense? I think common sense is just as often common nonsense. And what you really need to do is, at the level of truth, look into your assumptions, try to figure out why you believe the things that you believe, and then be willing and open to critical examination of them. But I'm a good Socratic philosopher at this point. I actually think beauty has a similar function. When we hike up a mountain or we listen to some beautiful piece of music, oftentimes, just like with truth, our worlds are blown open. The assumptions that we thought we knew so well, the, the ideas that we thought were merely common sense and the way that we relate to the world is oftentimes sort of blown open. So in the final chapters, I try to present the gospel in terms of beauty that Christ comes to us in beauty, and despite its seeming lack of reasonableness, this functional identity of beauty to truth may give us hope that God not only comes to us in Christ, but offers us the hope that truth and beauty will be reconciled in the eschaton. Eric Hall, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you so much, Nathan. I really appreciate it. Listeners, thank you for downloading and for listening in. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, Go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord. <laughs>